Hello, I'm Jane Little and welcome to the launch edition of Things Unseen, a new series which explores faith, spirituality and whether there are indeed things unseen. Or to borrow from Hamlet, perhaps there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than ever dreamt of in your philosophy. This programme comes to you from the beautiful Southwark Cathedral, which sits on the south bank of the River Thames. It's close to the busy London Bridge railway station, so you may catch the sound of the odd train rumbling by. But mostly you'll hear the hopefully fascinating insights of our panel and audience, who are here to take the spiritual pulse of a nation. To mark our launch, we commission Theos, the think tank that focuses on religion in society, to carry out research into patterns of belief in 21st century Britain. The findings might surprise you, because while we may be living in a post-Christian society, it would appear we are not a nation of atheists. Far from it. Spiritual beliefs are found across the board, and not just amongst those who follow one of the organised religions. The report found, amongst other things, that more than half of us believe that spiritual forces can influence human thoughts or the world around us, and, interestingly, more than one-third of the non-religious hold this view. One in six of those polled said they, or someone they knew, had experienced a miracle. Altogether, over three-quarters of the population believe there are things we cannot explain through science or any other means. And younger people are, if anything, more likely to hold such beliefs than older ones. So to discuss the findings and what they mean, I'm joined by the very Reverend Andrew Nunn, Dean of Southwark, by Gordon Lynch, Professor of Modern Theology at the University of Kent, by Tony Morris, who writes about and practices Buddhism, and by Elizabeth Oldfield, director of Theos. Elizabeth, lots of rich seams to mine here, but I'm wondering what together do they tell you about the spiritual climate of this country? Thank you, Jane. It's a fascinating insight that we've had here that's been building on lots of other brilliant research that's being done in the academic world and by other organisations pointing us to a trend, which is the fact that despite what we hear in the public narrative, the nation does not break down neatly into two boxes. So consistently atheist and secularist and consistently committedly religious. Those are the two voices that we most often hear, but most of us don't probably fit in that box. There's a middle ground of people who have a mixture of spiritual beliefs and practices, some traditionally religious, some not. And it's a fascinating new area of exploration, I think, that we're just beginning to understand. What we see is people are tending towards perhaps less personal forms of spirituality. There's lower levels of people believing in a personal God, but people believing in a, a life force, for example, are going up. Those are the kind of things we're beginning to see. You say less personal, but I'm wondering, Gordon Lynch, if you think it might be a more individualised age of spirituality. It's a sort of believing without belonging. We know from both this and other studies that belief is becoming much more individualised, and even people in quite, um, if you like, relatively conservative uh, religious groups are still experiencing their faith now in increasingly individualised ways, and ideas of individual authenticity are really important for them. I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me from this, which sort of confirms other studies as well, is that it doesn't seem terribly good news for kind of traditional Christian theism which seems to be in decline and the numbers in this survey are particularly low for that but also very bad news for Richard Dawkins as well who seems to be having a life of perpetual disappointment I think ahead of him <laughs> uh, in terms of, of his project uh, which may be a relief for some of the rest of us what seems to be left is I guess what I would 
think about as an open humanism, that there's not a strong sense of people living under a particular God who rules their life or an objective set of religious truth that rules their lives, but where issues with well-being, with authenticity, with everyday relationships are the primary concerns that people have, but where a sort of spiritual dimension isn't shut out from that. People aren't thoroughgoing materialists. I'm wondering if you would describe yourself, Tony, as a, a humanist, because you say that you write about Buddhism, you identify to a certain degree with Buddhism, but you don't want to be categorised and boxed as a Buddhist. Yes. Well, I'm in favour of the human race. Um, I think that's a very good thing for human beings <laughs> to be in favour of. And I'm always curious. I mean, it's a kind of peasant of me, I suppose. I'm the contrarian about categories, you know, categories of religion, categories of belief, categories of belonging even. And I was interested, actually, in the use of the word personal because I think one of the things that we're seeing also is personalised medicine. I always thought that's a very interesting phrase, you know, because what is medicine if it can't be personalised? Because medicine applies to different people and different people have different responses to medicine. And I suppose the personalised medicine phrase is a response to the idea of medicine as something that is given, that is prescriptive, that one size fits all. And what we're seeing now, and what maybe some of this data is actually showing us also, is that you need a more nuanced response. So what we're looking at here is a more various and more variegated picture about belief and about belonging. Andrew Nunn, I'm wondering if you're pleased with these findings, that it shows that a lot of people are still engaged with the idea there are spiritual forces at work in the world, or, or disillusioned because they're not coming to church? I'm not disillusioned at all. I think the fact that people are interested in things spiritual must be an opportunity for those of us who are kind of in the business professionally of providing a response to that. We've got a huge opportunity. What I would have been really disappointed by is if the results came back that said people just didn't care any longer about things spiritual. But the fact that in the uh, survey, 55% of people say that they pray at some stage, not maybe regularly, but at some stage. Now, I think that gives those of us who are into organised religion a real opportunity to step in and provide something more. Were you surprised, though, that only 13% said they prayed every day? I suppose so, because I see a lot of people coming into the cathedral, because cathedrals have the very porous places, and they've seen great growth in England particularly. The doors are open, people come in, and they access religion here, spirituality, peacefulness, whatever it is, in particular ways. But I see a lot of people coming in, for instance, lighting candles. And I don't know what they're doing, I don't know what they think they're doing, and I don't know what God they think they're lighting a candle to if they think that's what they're doing. But they're doing something. So that does surprise me, and I just wonder if they imagine that meant getting on your knees, closing your eyes, putting your hands together, like I was taught to pray as a little boy, and saying some formula of words. Elizabeth, I was struck by younger people showing so clearly. The under-34s seem to be in some categories, more engaged with a spiritual life, the idea that there's something else out there, mm -hmm. than the older generation, which, after all, was raised in a more religious climate. Yes, it's very, very interesting. You see, in some questions, the younger generation being slightly more sceptical, and in other areas, then being much more prepared to acknowledge either spiritual beliefs or practices. For example, young people are much more likely to say that they or someone they know has experienced a miracle. It's really notable there. I think. What this research shows is that these kind of spiritual beliefs and practices are fairly evenly spread across the population. It's not just the preserve of the elderly who perhaps grew up in a more religious nation and therefore just have it as a hangover. Uh, you see it 
really very consistently. There's another interesting thing that's just very, very subtle in the data, and we'd need to do a lot more to see it more clearly. But actually, occasionally what you see is a dip in the middle, that younger people and older people are less skeptical about the spiritual. But you have a kind of middle-aged group, perhaps, who came through the latter half of the 20th century, where they thought kind of secularism was inevitable. And they perhaps look a little bit more cynical in some places. So it's interesting to see what might happen in the future. Gordon, is that consistent with your research? I think so, yes. I mean, I guess one of the complicated issues here is, particularly when we're looking at a survey like this, what we think the data signifies to the people who are giving us these responses and the kind of salience of, of what these beliefs are. And you ask people what they believe, sometimes they'll believe that very intensely, sometimes they won't. It's always a very, very complicated picture, isn't it? But I think we can see how, in terms of a kind of interest in the, the broadly spiritual, that still gets worked through kind of youth culture. I always get reluctant to talk about that, as I find when I talk to my students and realise that I'm about 20 years out of date with what what they're watching but we can see like a whole sort of stream of television programs with an interest in the occult the supernatural where keeping that dimension of life open remains very much kind of part of popular culture. Tony do you think we're maybe living in a different kind of age now an age of sort of a pick and mix spirituality where you take the best of each tradition what each has to offer a sort of consumer driven spirituality? Yes and maybe that's a good thing maybe that's a bad thing I mean driving through Oxford the other day I saw this pub that was uh, boarded up or I had been uh, brought it up, and then I went past it again and it had been demolished. I was very excited by this. It was in a great part of Oxford, and I thought, gosh, it's a great opportunity for us to have community building, etc. Talk to people, and I said, what's happening there? Oh, they're building a Tesco. I mean, you know, my heart sank, you know, we could even talk about the great church of Tesco, and actually in the ways in which it does actually resemble a place of belonging and a place of opportunity for people. But I didn't want to talk about Tesco so much as about drink. Because one of the things that's happened, apart from the decline of organised religion, if you like, to judge by the statistics, is the collapse of other things, you know, the Cub Scout movement and political affiliation, trade unions, and also pubs. Pubs have gone down. And why is that? Is that because drinking's gone away? Answer, no. What's happened is that we've seen a great kind of diversification. We've seen drinking becoming more personalised, more adapted to convenience. We've seen a whole variety of drinks. There are microbreweries coming up. There are all sorts of fusion things. The gastropub, one of the great British gifts to the world. So what I'm saying is that actually we're probably looking at the supply side a little bit too much. And actually what this wonderful survey gestures towards maybe is something to do with demand and the continuation of demand, but demand expressed in a number of different ways. Andrew, I'm wondering then if you need to look at the demand side a little more and to take the consumer model, what do the punters out there want? Perhaps change the message? Well, if they're coming to cathedrals which don't particularly change the message very often, you know, not since the Elizabethan <laughs> time, um, I, would, I would think that not quite, although that's a bit of a parody of what we do because I, th I think there's been a lot of movement in the life of cathedrals. But when you were just speaking then about the demise of the pub and other things like that, I think part of it is individualism that's developed. So going to the pub in EastEnders or Coronation Street or whatever is about the community gathering. That's where you do all your stuff together and where you have your fights and where you meet the person you love and all of that. People now meet the person they love very often online, it seems. You access that from your bedsit. The thing about churches is it's about community. And if you don't know how to relate to a wider community or you don't want to relate to a wider community, there's something about not gathering, whether it be in a mosque or a temple or a church or something like that, because you want it on your own terms. And that, for me, is a very negative thing within society. And I think the dip 
that we spoke about. If you look back, and I don't want to get too political, but I think those Thatcher years when we were told there was no such thing as society, that somehow got into people's psyche very quickly and very deeply and challenged that whole sense of what it means to be community, brothers and sisters, neighbours, one to another. And that is a serious challenge to organised religion, all organised religion, because that's what we build upon, the same as a pub does. I wonder also, Tony, you were brought up in the Church of England and then mm. shifted across to Buddhism, but you haven't completely dropped going to church. You go no, I mean, in I, different I, directions. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think churches are fantastically relevant places. And uh, the number of people that have told me tonight, even just before this programme, that they live around here or work around here but haven't actually dropped in to Southwark, it's extraordinary. Are you yeah. just coming because it's a beautiful aesthetic? Or do you actually sometimes feel like you still need an intermediary? Because isn't that part of what we're talking about here? I think it's a beautiful aesthetic. I think it relates us to our history and to the context, which I think is very important and something that we're in danger of losing sight of. And yes, I actually think sitting in silence, sitting in a situation of maybe of awe and of reverence is something that is fantastically relevant and important in people's lives, more important than it ever has been in our busy urban existences. And the trouble is, somehow, we're not actually communicating that effectively enough to people. So they're seeking recourse in other ways through online communities and so on, which they maybe have more control over. Gordon, do you see people going in a more sort of a la carte direction, a very individualised I think sometimes way. we can slightly overdo that in the sense that with something like religious choice, it's often mediated through our, things like our family relationships. So I really don't feel free to choose whatever religion I, I want to because of the implications that has for the people around me in my life. And that's true for a lot of our major choices. So I think the idea of us becoming kind of highly individualist is more perhaps an idea than actually how we kind of live our lives. But just, just to pick up on that last point, though, and I think that idea about space and the spaces we come to. I mean, Theos did a very, very interesting study about cathedrals recently, where the numbers of people visiting cathedrals has risen hugely over the past decade. And I think even though people's beliefs may be quite confused, the idea of coming to a space that centers them, that, that evokes something in them, is still a very, very powerful thing and something that's more inspiring than Tesco's I think it's really important to people. Well on that issue of belief and practice Elizabeth let's look at some of the statistics associated with more traditional belief. It seemed quite low that less than a third of us believe in an afterlife, one in four of us believe in heaven and yet 16% of us believe in reincarnation. Is that indicative of a shift? I think one of the things that we're seeing in this research and elsewhere is rather than society necessarily becoming straightforwardly more secular or more materialist, what you're getting is society becoming more plural. So the traditional forms of Christian belief are declining, although there's some other interesting things going on, but you see what were minority religions often growing. So things like reincarnation, growth in Islam, are beginning to build up much more of a patchwork of people's religious belief, definitely a kind of plural picture building up. And how are you going to get those people into church, Andrew? Should you be trying to? Yes, I want the place full. I want every seat occupied. It's not just good enough for me to sit and say, well, the doors are open and you can come in. People need to know that they're welcome, that somebody like them is welcome, that they don't need to know all the rules when they come through the door, because it is a very strange environment to come into a church service if you've not got the foggiest idea of what's going on. Somehow we need to make the entry easier for people and when they get there to help people into worship if they're looking for that kind of organised religion. 
And we also need to value what people believe in. You know, I can sort of read these results and sort of turn my nose up at some of the things that people believe in and think, well, how on earth do sensible people believe in this, that, and the other? But they do. They've said they do. And so I can be very dismissive or I can say, right, let's start from there and see where we can go. Thank you. Well, let me open it up to the floor now and invite people to introduce yourself and raise any questions you might have. I'm Mark Dowd. I'm a religious broadcaster and journalist. I'm really keen to know more about these young people who are coming back to the sense of the spiritual and the religious. And I wonder whether anyone on the panel can unpack that. What is it about that period of secularism and deafness, if you like, to the spiritual that perhaps people lived through in the 80s and the 90s uh, that suddenly has changed and now they're engaged again? What transformation has taken place? Gordon. I'm actually not convinced they are. I think that there have been some studies which suggest that that idea of young people as spiritual seekers is, is not sort of well-grounded, even in the United States, which we think of as being a much more overtly religious society. And I think there's something slightly more complex than straightforward spiritual seeking going on. I think young people are keeping open a possibility of the supernatural without actually having any serious intent to uh, pursue that through any kind of sustained practice. Necessarily, there will obviously be exceptions to that. So it became a way of not shutting things down not becoming a sort of patsy just being controlled by orthodox knowledge but it's not quite a sort of earnest sort of spiritual pursuit I don't think. Andrew? I think that there is something about realising that the consumer culture doesn't give us everything that there is something very two-dimensional about that and people are willing to look in a deeper way I think particularly younger people but because they come without the baggage that a lot of us have around religion, they're more willing to ask very searching questions of the places that they go. One of the things I think is a particular feature nowadays is that if you're born Church of England, if it can be such a thing, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be Church of England for the rest of your life, and that's a big change. You now go to the, the best place in the neighbourhood, like you choose the best restaurant in the neighbourhood, and that can change. So people are much more fluid and their sense of belonging. They will go along to where people are welcome and where some truth is being told, I think. So that is a particular challenge to those of us who want folk to sort of commit to being here. It might be worth mentioning at this point, Elizabeth, the fact that although a lot of people said they had spiritual beliefs, when it came to practice, there were much lower levels of commitment, particularly, of course, among the non-religious. Mm, exactly. I mean, you do see some spiritual practices, in some cases really surprising numbers, 25% of people have had their tarot cards read. But it is, I think, in the nature of some of these spiritual beliefs as opposed to more traditionally religious beliefs, they don't necessarily require practice. They don't necessarily involve meeting together as a community in quite the same way. They don't always have the same ritual element, the same kind of commitments and disciplines around them. And therefore, I'm not sure it indicates that people hold these spiritual beliefs any less sincerely because they're not necessarily practicing them. Is community important to you, Tony? I'm just wondering in a naughty way whether if there was this dip in the middle, and one of the things about younger people is that you obviously want to define yourself against your parents, if your parents are becoming more and more secular, then hey, why not open up the possibility that they might have got it wrong with this slightly reductive way? And I think they also recognize different, in this pluralistic environment, different kinds of explanations of phenomena I think why I was attracted ultimately to Buddhism is that it is non-dualistic. 
it sees a fundamental intrinsic connection. It says you cannot have nature without nurture, you cannot have life without an environment, the mind-body relationship, the self, the other. These are actually integral. And I think we are looking at a world that is moving, whether we like it or not, to the realisation of a truth that we are all fundamentally interdependent. The study actually, the report suggested that only 25% of respondents felt that we were only material beings. Mm. This gentleman over here. Hi, my name's Eddie Camphadumar. I'm one of the presenters of uh, Things Unseen, and I'm also a Buddhist. I'm very struck by the fact that, of course, people say they believe all sorts of different things, but how they behave is, of course, something different. Or is it? I'd be very interested in seeing if there's any connection between what people believe and how they behave and whether your research has thrown any light on that. This study doesn't go into that in any great depth and I think it's one of the really interesting areas. If you hold these kind of religious beliefs, does that not just influence what kind of spiritual practices you'll un undertake, but also perhaps what are the ethical decisions you'll make? What are the consumer decisions you'll make? What are the political choices you'll make? I think it's a really ripe area for more study. Andrew. We've just embarked um, here at Southwark on a programme for this year called Living God. And we've started off by asking ourselves, the whole of the congregation, what we mean. When we talk about God, what are we talking about? And we're aiming to arrive at the, in the summer term, we're talking about just that. So if this is my belief in God, how does that actually affect my life? Because if there's complete disconnect, then we've lost something fundamental. And I think you ask a really, really important question because for those people who do access organised religion, there's a kind of reinforcement going on all the time in terms of teaching and through influencing one another just by association. I think if you're accessing religion on your own, you don't get that at all. So I, I think that there can be a massive disconnect. And it would be really, really interesting to see how our congregation's beliefs actually are affecting their daily lives. Tony? I suppose the older I get, the more um, interested I become in the challenges in Buddhist terms of the Sangha, of the community. Because if you're in an online community where everybody agrees with you, by definition, and they've all joined up, you aren't going to be challenged very much. But the one thing that we know, if we are going to progress in our development as human beings, is that we need to be challenged by friendly challengers, and there is nothing like being in a community for actually challenging you. Briefly, go on. I think we often have the idea that there should be a continuity between people's belief and their practice, which is a very Protestant Reformation way of thinking about belief. It's a very historically particular way of thinking about belief. And if we separate those out and accept that people are actually much messier and much more complicated than that, then that becomes very interesting in terms of looking at what their practices are, which may have an integrity and a meaning embedded in the practice that they can't articulate through a belief at all. Like I would go to Canterbury Cathedral and light a candle there and be completely unable to articulate what I'm doing like, in terms of any kind of doctrine formula at all, but the practice may have some kind of meaning. But having a public language around practices that could actually enable us to sustain a meaningful life would be something that we could do to move this discussion forward, I think. Well, we've got quite a few people still want to ask questions, so we've got a couple of gentlemen over there. If I can ask you both, actually, separately, obviously, to introduce yourselves, ask your question, and then I'll ask panellists to respond to one or uh, two of them. Andrew Grayson, I'm a broadcaster and director of the Church and Media Network. This survey presents a fascinating snapshot in saying that people who are younger and people who are older are more 
interested in spirituality than, than perhaps people in the middle years. But I wonder whether that might not always have been true, whether it might be just telling us something about the human life cycle rather than about our current age. And the gentleman behind you. Hello there. Uh, my name's Nick Taylor. I'm a shamanic practitioner. I do a lot of work with young people. I would just like to pick one sort of issue with this idea that there is a sort of a dualism between organized religion as the place where people come together and alternative or complementary spiritual belief systems as the place where people sort of atrophy and atomize by themselves. And actually, I feel a bit like these beautiful pillars in this cathedral, that the origin of us, you know, of all of our life is out in the woodland. And what's happening out there is that people are gathering, people are dancing, people are feasting, people are connecting with their divinity without an intermediary. And I wonder what the panel think about that. Andrew, can you take that question about the no need for an intermediary? Because obviously the church is going to be out of business if, um, if the answer is yes. I'll be out of a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I think without wanting to do myself out of a job, of course, God is an open access God, whatever I mean by God. God, for me, is somebody I can approach. I, and my prayers are through Jesus Christ our Lord. But when I say that, do I really mean that I can only get to God through Jesus? To a certain extent, I believe that Jesus, for me, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But I do have a personal relationship with God. And I think those are real dilemmas. Having said all of that, in a church where there is a ritual, and I think in, in lots of practices there is ritual, you need the people who are the priests of that, who are the holders of the ritual. And that may be more widely shared in some communities than in others. And I think that can help people to find their way through it. So you don't want to overplay the intermediary role, but I think that there is a, a way of enabling people to access uh, the things divine. Tony, do you yeah, and I, 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 yes, and I want to say that uh, you know, even within the shamanic tradition, or maybe especially within the shamanic tradition, there are people who are conduits for that kind of connection. But I think our friend in the audience, you know, raised a very important point, and one of the background features, if you like, is a relationship with with land and with time and with place and with nature and the cycles. If you go back 150 years or so, you have very clear rituals. You have very clear community action in response. You have seasonal festivals, gatherings roughly every six weeks. The church itself, you know, is built around that, around Candlemas and May Day and Harvest Festival and Christmas and so on and so forth. There was a built-in connection with the world that people lived in. Now, in our urban, pluralistic, complicated, dizzying urban environment, we've lost some of that sense of that sort of framework I went onto a website to the European Space Agency today. I recommend, if there's one thing, talking about miracles that people really needed to do, go out at about 3 o'clock in the morning, stand in the back garden, if you're lucky enough to have a garden or a roof, whatever, in the street, look up at the sky, and here we are. There are, according to the European Space Agency, 100,000 million stars in our Milky Way, and there are millions of other galaxies, an estimate of 10 to the power of 24 stars in the universe. If you want to understand, as Tishnahan says, many people are alive, but don't touch the miracle of being alive. And I mean, that's what we're actually talking about, really, is the ability to try to connect with a sense of greater possibility. Elizabeth, I wondered if you could address the earlier question about maybe 
it's not telling us anything new about the age groups here. Yes, I, I need to be clear. I worded what I said earlier very, very carefully because this isn't showing up as a really strong trend in the research. It's, it's a hint and a hunch that this might be what's going on, but we'd need a lot more work to substantiate it. If it is, in fact, the case, then I think part of what might be going on is a sense of that's a natural life cycle, but perhaps that's been exacerbated recently. Towards the end of your life, there's a kind of insecurity and anxiety, perhaps, about death. But young people now are heading into a time where they're likely to be less well-off than their parents, when we live in an age where the kind of security of getting a house, getting a job for life has gone. And therefore, it's not really surprising that that bunch of people in the middle who have perhaps uh, come off less badly from the global financial crisis might be seeking things elsewhere less often. One here and then this gentleman here. Yes, you my name is Bolton, a journalist, sort of. Um, <laughs> the, the good news, obviously, is the number of people who are still interested and involved. There's also good news from science in that there's some evidence that religion is good for you physically. Communities mm. live longer, people tend to be happier within those. The remarkable thing is that so many people bother to come. And I wanted to ask the Dean in particular, Tonight I've been to your Evensong for a person like me at my age, the most beautiful of occasions. And I don't want to suggest that that should be set aside. But why is the church not developing forms of worship and connection with young people that doesn't involve them being saddled by Victorian hymns or Old Testament readings about genocide or those things that are most off-putting? Why don't you answer that now, Andrew? Well, it's a fantastic question. I would say that we do do other things. I mean, you were talking about Cora Liebensong, and that is one particular strand of our life, which is, which is a very important strand when cathedrals are built around uh, choral tradition and those kinds of things. And I don't despise Victorian hymns, perhaps, as you do. No, I like the music. You like the music? Yeah. <laughs> but around that, around that central core of worship, there is a lot of imaginative stuff going on here and in other places as well. So don't just look at the obvious stuff that cathedrals do, because I do recognise that there is a great need for imaginative ways of worshipping and new ways of worshipping and fresh expressions of church. And traditional expressions of church do not satisfy everybody, but the research that Theos did last year is that a great many people do access spirituality, religion, church, through cathedrals increasingly because of some of the constant things that are on offer, even some of the more unfortunate genocidal readings as well that come up in the lectionary. This gentleman here. Thank you, Hector Batmore. I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University. Looking back at the history of religions, I work in particular on ancient Judaism, you see many of the dramatic changes in thought and religious practice are shaped by external factors. So in ancient Judaism, for example, the rise of belief in bodily resurrection, uh, the rise in apocalyptic thought, for example, both come in a time when the Jewish state is occupied by the Seleucids and they're under pressure. They're responding to external political world events so to speak. Can we point to external events that explain these phenomena that have been highlighted this evening? 
Let's put our professor of theology on the spot. <laughs> well, you could possibly say it was a triumph of capitalism, I suppose. There does seem to be some kind of individualisation of, of religion going on here, but the sense of a, a kind of lack of any desire for a, a kind of strong overarching framework does seem to suggest that people are operating unhappily but sort of accepting the capitalist system in which they're operating that seems to provide the kind of ideological homes I mean one of the most striking things is we've gone through such a global turmoil and it hasn't really had any effect I don't think in terms of the, this kind of data at all it's extraordinary really Tony? Yeah you can read it that way and you can read it the other way as well I mean I think actually what people are groping towards or maybe is a sense that the paradigms within which we've been operating, the capitalist system, for example, have clearly not delivered the things that they set out to deliver or have not delivered the benefits to people. And as we move into a more global society, as we move inescapably and ineluctably to a realisation that we are all fundamentally interconnected, you cannot cause pollution over here without it having an impact over there on the other side of the world. You cannot have a meltdown of markets here without having an impact. Every producer needs a consumer. We are going to have to come to terms with the truth of this underlying relationship. And I think that a properly constructed religion or spiritual belief, if you like, will be addressing that question very, very directly and will be showing, will be saying, the reason why we do this is not because it's some sort of marginal activity, it's because it's directly relevant to your everyday life. And perish the thought that it requires some sort of awful global catastrophe to actually get people you know, down on their hands and knees saying, oh, please, God, how do we get out of here? Because that's not the kind of religion I'm interested in. I actually want people to see that what they do, to go back to the question over here, in their daily life has a profound impact on everybody. And therefore, they must take responsibility if they want to make the world a better place. And that's where religion comes in and spirit comes in. Until we have time for another quick question here. Good evening. My name's Kyle Alexander-Raj. I'm an artist and a Muslim. I, I'm interested in this idea of individualism and pluralism. Is there a reflection of that as a pluralism within organised religions? Organised religions, of course, are normally perceived as being monolithic. But are we seeing more of this individual trait coming into the organised religions in the UK and actually being expressed as a pluralism within them that kind of challenges that paradigm? Gordon. I can answer two questions at one here because that goes back in a way to Roger's question as well. I think the idea that religions are monolithic is just a kind of mistake of thought really. I mean they clearly never have been and, and that would just be a missing what's actually happening on, on the ground. So there's always been a, a movement with, with different kind of social currents including sort of the trend towards individualism in, in contemporary society and we see that in Christianity. So I guess the answer to your question about why doesn't the church develop that kind of worship is that the evangelicals are in the Church of England. So I have one colleague doing ethnographic research one congregation on the south coast where the youngest person is sort of 65 and it goes sort of up into the 90s and another congregation where the oldest person is 25 so we're seeing a great deal of pluralization within within religious communities definitely well i'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there thank you to everybody in our audience here and also to our panel the very reverend andrew nunn professor gordon lynch tony morris and Elizabeth Oldfield. I'd like to suggest that we all reconvene in about 10 years' time to see if any of us were right on everything we said. <laughs> I'm Jane Little, and you've been listening to the launch edition of Things Unseen, the programme for people who wonder if there's more to life than meets the material eye. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC.
And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.